You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Good morning, beloved. It's a pleasure again to be able to bring the word to you. And as we begin this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as you know, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying it just before he goes to the cross. And the first part of the prayer, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying specifically for the, those men who were with him in that moment. But in verse 20, he begins to change, and he says this, John 17, verse 20. He's praying to his father, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So now Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for people who have come to believe that he is the Messiah throughout all of history, and and he's praying for us. And this is what he prays. And it's really critical that we understand his passion. He prays this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given to them, I have given, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So there's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he prays something three times, and it's absolutely critical that we understand what he prayed. He prayed that the church would be one, that his church would be unified, that we would be one. He prayed it three times. When Jesus prays something once, it's significant. When he prays something twice, it's really important. When he says something three times, I was pleading to his father before he goes to the cross, and his heart is pouring out before God. And he says, God, Father, for all of those who will believe in me through the word of these disciples, my passion, my heart, my prayer is this, that you would make them one, that you would bind them into a perfect unity. And he asks it three times, and he explains twice why he is asking the Father to do that for us. And he says it twice, so that the world might come to know that you sent me and that you love me. And so what he is saying is this, In some way that we need to explore, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is demonstrated conclusively, irrevocably to our world by our unity. The reality of the incarnation of the Son of God is proven to our world by the fact that we are unified as the people of God. And the reason is this, that nothing can take sinful, proud, tribal, insecure, stubborn people who left to their own devices would be warring with each other and weld them into a loving, unified body like the gospel of Jesus Christ and his presence in our midst. Now, let me say that again because it's critical that we understand that nothing can take people like us who are by nature insecure and proud and prone to bitterness and stubborn and people like us who are tribal and sinful and self-absorbed. People like us who, when we're left to our own devices, would find ourselves in conflict in an animosity. Nothing can weld a group like that into a unified body but the gospel of Christ and his presence in our fellowship. And when the world sees that, when the world understands that, when the world feels that, it proves, according to Jesus' prayer, that he was incarnate as the Son of God because he incarnates himself in our fellowship. 
Now, Paul knew this, and we need to understand that one of the greatest evidences for the incarnation is the miraculous unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about this first century phenomenon, and it was a first century phenomenon in the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today. So if you flip back to the book of Ephesians, beginning at verse 11, Paul talks about something amazing that God has done. What he writes about in these short few verses in first century culture was absolutely breathtaking. Because in the church, God brought together, he brought into a deep unity of love and affection two groups that were profoundly divided, deeply hostile to one another. He cemented into one body two groups of people that essentially hated each other. On the one hand, you had the Jewish Christians in the Ephesian church. These Jews had been fanatically nationalistic. They were xenophobic. They were intolerant of all other peoples and faiths and religions. Everyone else in the world other than them were unclean. They saw them as Gentile dogs. A dog was an unclean animal. Someone who was not Jewish was no better than an unclean Gentile dog. And on the other hand, you had the sort of the Hellenistic Roman culture of first century, of the first century world. And the Romans, the Gentiles, were deeply suspicious of the Jews. The Jews dressed funny. They had weird laws. They had rules and regulations that made no sense to a Gentile. And what was worse, not just their religion and all their customs and their laws and their idiosyncrasies, but what was worse is that they they were the only culture, the only group within sort of the confederation that was the Roman Empire who had so ardently and passionately fought the call of the Romans to worship and sacrifice to the emperor, who they believed was a living God. The Jews had died, hundreds, thousands of them had died, fighting, saying, we will never recognize that Caesar is God. We will never sacrifice to the emperor because we believe that there is one God, the God of Israel. Now, the consequence of their intransigence was this. The consequence of their unwillingness to recognize the emperor as, the, as, as God and, and sacrifice to him was that they were considered very disloyal to the empire. They were considered as traitors to the empire. So what did God do? What did God do in the Ephesian church? He did what he had always planned to do. Look at what it says in verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time, in the fullness of time when God sent his son, what did God begin to do? He began to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. God did something breathtaking in Ephesus. He did something breathtaking in Colossae, in Hierapolis, in Rome. He brought people who were naturally in animosity with one another, people who would never, ever, ever be in the same room together and caused them to fall in love with each other. And the world was blown away. The world was stunned. He melded these two groups into a loving fellowship, which was, as we learned last week, the mystery of Christ, what God had planned to do all along. And so Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to read this passage for you just to give you a a heads up about where we're going. He's talking about this in verse 11. He says to the Gentiles, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off being brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, listen, who, made, who has made, both, made us both one and has broken down by his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Jesus did in Ephesus through his death and resurrection and the working of his Holy Spirit is he killed the hostility that existed between Gentile and Jew and the world looked on and were shocked and amazed by the love of these two groups who otherwise, apart from Christ's, gospel and his work in their lives would be at enmity with one another. So you say, well, Paul, that's all well and good. It's very interesting. Thank you for that theological lesson. How does it apply to me? What am I supposed to do with this? How does it impact me? And the answer is really simple. And let me say it as simply as I can. The effectiveness of our church in our community is rooted in in our unity. The effectiveness of Harvest Niagara from this day forth, going forward, is rooted in our unity, in our love for one another. There is nothing on the planet, nothing on the planet like a loving, unified, cohesive body of believers. You can't find anywhere else what we enjoy in the church when we are living together in unity. You can't find it in a bar. You can't find it in a service club. You can't find it in a sorority or a fraternity. You can't find it in a trade union. You can't find it in any other group that comes together for any other cause. What we have the potential to enjoy in the church is absolutely unique in this world. And it's impossible, it's impossible to enjoy it without the gospel and the presence of Jesus. So when we are loving one another as Christ has called us to love, when we are laying down our lives for one another as Christ has called us to, when we are considering others as more important than myself, when we are serving and sacrificing for others, when we're weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, when we are forgiving those who have hurt us, when we're going and, and, and finding reconciliation, when we have done something foolish and, and hurt a brother or a sister, when we are living that, God in our church creates an ethos of love that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. And you know what? It is, it is attractive. It draws people like a magnet. And it proves to them that Jesus is in our midst. It shows them the reality of the incarnation because it would simply not be possible were it not for the presence of the living Christ in our fellowship. So the question is then, what does division do? In a church, what, do, what does conflict do in a church? What does that, what does isolation do in the church where you pull back and you're more of a spectator as, as opposed to a servant? What does bitterness do? What does unforgiveness do? Well, first of all, it guarantees that Jesus will not be in our fellowship. You know, a unified church, a church that genuinely loves, is like a low-pressure area where the wind of the Spirit of God just rushes to. But where selfishness prevails and pride prevails and stubbornness and willfulness and bitterness and resentment, broken relationships are tolerated. It's like we put up a sign and say, Lord, we don't want you here. 
don't bother coming. And we might go through the motions of church, but we're not going to impact our community. A church living in unity, in love, in forgiveness, in selflessness, is an incarnational argument that the world has no response to. That's why Jesus prayed that. Father, build them into, he's about to go to the cross. Build them into a perfect unity. Why? So that the world might come to believe that you sent me. We, when we love each other, are an irrefutable argument that Jesus is alive and that he's in our midst. But many of us are pretty cavalier about this whole issue of unity, aren't we? Many of us don't put a priority on unity. We harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. We're prickly, easily offended, quick to withdraw if we're not recognized. We're critical, quick to anger. So for the church to have real unity, and then as a consequence, for the church to be very effective in Niagara, what do we need to do? Well, I think this passage gives us four things, and I'll work through them beginning at verse 11. And the first thing is this. If we're going to really have the unity that the Lord wants to have, so that he shows up in our fellowship in an unmistakable, palpable, real way that the world has no explanation for. We must first make the journey from me to we. So I want to draw your attention again. I'm going to read the passage again, but I want to draw your attention to three very, very small little words. And I'll kind of emphasize them as I go through. So let's begin at verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Paul's talking about the Jews. We have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, now he's talking about the Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, inherit, our inheritance, we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it's a very simple point I want to make. Paul's talking about himself as a Jew. He says, we, Jews. And then he's talking about you, Gentiles. And then he talks at the end about our inheritance that we together have come into in Christ. So the Jews were the first to hope in Christ, right? And Paul says to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So if you read the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, it's pretty much all about Jews. There's a little bit of a foray into Samaria, but for the most part, it's about God's work amongst the Jews. And then we get to this hinge chapter, chapter 10 where God does something amazing, unexpected, shocking. He uses Peter to lead a Gentile centurion in Caesarea to faith in Christ. And these Gentiles have this kind of second Pentecost experience. And everybody's blown away. So it was the Jew first, then the Gentile. And that's how Paul approaches it here. He speaks about what God has done for us. We, Jews, you Gentiles, and then he talks about our inheritance at the end that we together share in. So what is this inheritance? Well, it's heaven, but it's not just heaven. It's eternal life for sure, but it's eternal life that begins when we are born into the family of God. Our inheritance is is us. The inheritance that we have as the people of God is our salvation, 
our adoption, our shared adoption into the family of God, our reconciliation to our Father. Our inheritance is that we have become part of God's covenant family. And this is who we are. That is what God has made us. Our inheritance in Christ is to be together forever as the family of the living God. Flip back to uh, 2 Corinthians real quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this. Second half of verse 6, he says this. For we are the temple of the living God. That is our inheritance. We have been made now the living temple of God. And God says this, I will make my dwelling among them then, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. We are the inheritance, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us his temple. And then he says this, and I will make my presence among them. Now, do you expect that? Do you, do you anticipate that when we get together as the body of Christ, that the living God of Israel will come in amongst us in such a profound, palpable, life-changing way that non-Christians walk into this place, come into our fellowship, and go, wow, I have never, ever in my life experienced anything like this. I've sat in bars, I've been in fraternities, I've been in all kinds of clubs, but I have never felt this. What is it? And we say, it's Jesus. He's here. Because we're his temple. And it's not me, it's us. He is our God, and we are his people. We are his people. As we come together in unity. Now, we never lose the me but when we kind of downplay the me a little bit and emphasize the we and focus on the fact that we together are the bride of Christ, a called out people to represent him in this world, a people that when we gather together, he loves to come and manifest his presence in our midst. When we begin to understand that, when that really begins to grip us, we begin to move from me-centric thinking to we-centric thinking. It's not all about me anymore. It's about the church. It's about the body that I'm a part of. Today in our culture, many people want to think, or I think we're trained to think fiercely individualistically. Like, so, so we're taught as kids, we're taught by advertisers, we're taught as we grow up, I'm going to be, I'm going to forge my own path. I'm going to walk to the beat of a different drummer. I'm not going to follow the crowd, I'm going to set my own rules, I'm going to live on my terms. And that's what we say, but in reality, our identity, how we think about ourselves, is being downloaded into our brain by, by big media big tech, Hollywood, academia, those kind of things. And that's a subject for a different day. But the, but the point I want to make is this, that we tend to want to think of ourselves as individuals, as standalone, autonomous. And if that is our mindset, if, if we think about me in that way, we can never be what God has called us to be, the temple of the living God, his people, his body, his bride. So what does the Bible say? Well, I'll give you an illustration, again, from the book of, of, of Ephesians. What should our attitude be? Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope. 
that belongs to your calling, our inheritance. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we got a choice to make. We have a choice to make. And the choice is this. Are we going to see ourselves as an individual who attends Harvest Niagara? Or are we going to see ourselves as part of the temple that is Harvest Niagara? My identity is not just this individual over here who happens to go to this church for my needs and my wants and my teaching and my, my priorities. That's how most people view church. How we need to view church if we're going to be the people of God and he is going to come and make his presence manifest amongst us, we need to see ourselves as part of this body. Our identity is this inheritance that he has given to us. He has plugged us in here by grace for our blessing and that we might be a blessing. You see, in Ephesus, there was a day when the Jews and the Gentiles of this church would, the Jews would walk by the Gentile and avert their gaze so as not to pollute themselves by looking at him. That's going to win you a lot of friends in the Gentile community, right? And the Gentiles looked at these Jews as a bunch of nut job fanatics. And what did God do? He started to unite people in Christ. Jew and Gentile. Slave and free. Men and women. Rich and poor. Black and white. And the amazing thing is this. They loved each other. They loved each other. And the world looked at it and scratched their heads and said, what in the world is going on? And they said, well, come and visit. So, they, so the non-Christian walked in, Jew, Gentile. He walked in, very suspicious, sits down and experiences Jesus. Like that should just blow your mind. It does mine. And they say, what in the world is going on here? Well, Jesus is here. Yeah, I know, you killed him, but he's alive. And we're the evidence. We're the proof. Because nothing, no one could do this but him. And they say, I want to join. Where do I sign up? What would it be like if we really considered our potential in Niagara, to so, by so radically loving one another that we would create an ethos, a culture, an environment that would be so radically attractive to non-Christians that they just want to be here. And we can. We can. If we're willing to move from me-centricity to we, the body of Christ. Secondly, we need to get serious about this little phrase that we talked about on the first Sunday that he repeats three times. Get serious about the praise of his glory. If you look at this passage, verses 11 through 14, you see the parallels, it's pretty easy. The beginning of verse 11, in him, you see that? And then it talks about what God has done. Working all things after the purpose of him, uh, uh, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, <clears throat> might be the, to the praise of his glory. And then he repeats himself talking about the Gentiles. Verse 11, in him... You also, Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we together acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See that? It's about the praise of God's glory. So Paul is saying in this, that this new covenant people, the church, are to be to the praise of of his glory, the praise of his glorious grace. So practically, what does that mean? What does it mean to be to the praise of his glorious grace? 
I think the simple answer is this. We bring praise and glory to God and to his grace through sharing the gospel and being impacted, transformed by it. It's simply declaring it and then declaring by our lives how it, the gospel, has revolutionized us, has changed us. So it's a spoken, verbal declaration and a non-verbal declaration is how we live our lives. So how do we bring him glory? We love as he loved us. And as we do, he is glorified. We forgive as he forgave us. And as we do, he is glorified. We serve as he served us. And as we do, he is glorified. We consider others more important than ourselves. And as we do, he is glorified. We extend grace. We extend mercy. We extend kindness as he has to us. And the consequence is he is glorified. So as we live together in unity, having been changed by the gospel, he is glorified. And that culture, that ethos that the Spirit of God creates within us, that environment is magnetic. As I said, it is attractive. It is something that can only be created by the presence of God in our midst. And it entices people. People long for it. Why do you think people go and sit in bars? They're looking for what God has placed, what we have in the heart of every man and every woman, and we enjoy it now because we have found the source. People in our culture are lonely, desperately lonely, looking all over the place for what we have. So we bring praise and and glory to God by preaching the gospel and by living it out. It's a twofold witness. So my question is simply this. How can we do that? How can we bring praise and honor and glory to God if by our actions, our lack of love, our lack of forgiveness, our lack of mercy, our lack of kindness, how can we bring him glory when we're conflicted and fractured and bitter. You see, it's, it's just inconceivable that those who have been loved in such an extraordinary way don't love. It's so inconceivable and so wrong and so hypocritical to have been forgiven so much and to hold on to that slight Hold on to that bitterness against someone else. It is so wrong to have been shown so much incredible mercy and grace and love by God and not give it away to others. It is so inconsistent. It is so wrong because it is an absolute denial of the gospel. And so what do we have when churches live like this? full of selfish people who come only to get and to criticize when they don't get what they want. People who come and sit on that side of the church because she or he is on that side and I haven't talked to them in five years and I'm I'm never talking to them because of what they did to me. People who are so self-absorbed that they don't want to serve, they don't want to work, they don't want to invest. What does that do? What it does is says our message is not true. It belies the gospel. It contradicts the gospel. When we say one thing, God is love. God is a God of reconciliation. But there's no way in a million years that I'm ever going to talk to that jerk because of what he did to me. Like, what does that say? What is that? It's hypocrisy, right? And the world looks at us and they shake their head and they just walk on by. 
In order to live to the praise of his glorious grace, we need to understand that it's just not what we sing in worship and what we hear preached from the pulpit. It's what we say with our lives. And when you put good theology in our worship and good theology in our preaching and couple that with a church that genuinely lives the gospel, that is a revolutionary church that brings praise and honor and glory to him. And as I said before, that creates that low-pressure area into which the spirit of the wind of the Spirit of God loves to just rush powerfully. And so some of us are going to have to repent. Some of us are critical. Some of us are bitter. Some of us are lazy. Some of us are takers and not givers. Some of us don't love, but we love to be loved. Some of us hold on to resentment. Some of us have a root of bitterness right now in your soul, and it's springing up, as as, as, uh, Hebrews says, and it is defiling not only you, but also the people around you. Some of us are a critical spirit. We get nothing good to say about anybody. And it deeply, deeply hurts the church. And we can have the greatest preaching and we can have the greatest worship. We can be completely orthodox. But if that ethos is who we are or who you're contributing to us being, you need to repent. Now, I know that I've never met the vast majority of you, and if I'm offending you, I apologize. I don't mean to be offensive. But for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given us the gospel, a transformative message that he intends to change us by, that we might be like his son in relationship with each other. And when we do, the incarnation is validated, it's substantiated, it's proven to the world. So we might need to repent. And I want to talk about that thirdly. To be the church that God wants us to be, unified, we need to accept that unity is the fruit of genuine belief. Look at what he says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Now we know from what Paul has said earlier on that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, belief in Christ alone. We know that we're saved by grace, through belief, trust in Christ. But sometimes this little word frightens me. And I I think it's important that we think about it. The Bible says that Satan believes, James 2.19, Satan, the demons believe, but they're clearly not saved. So what does it mean to believe? To believe, to hear the word of God and believe it. Is it just a theoretical, intellectual, theological cognitive acquiescence to a certain list of doctrines? Is that what belief is? Is it just understanding, hearing, understanding, saying that makes sense? Yes. Is that what belief is in this context? I don't think so. I think it's possible to believe the right things about the gospel and really not believe, and as a consequence, really not be saved. Let me explain. In in the book of 1 John, at the end of the book, John in in, in chapter 5, verse 13 says this, I write these things to you, little children, that, that you may know that you have eternal life. Essentially saying, I'm writing these things that you might know that your belief is genuine. And if you read the book, he writes very kind of differently than Paul, but if you read the book, over and over and over again, there are tests that he gives to cause people to think about whether or not they actually believe what they say they believe. 
I'll read some of them to you. First John chapter one, verses six and seven. If we have fellowship with him <clears throat> while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, the son, cleanses us from all sin. Go over to chapter two, verses three through six. And by this we have come to know, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected by this we may know that we are in him whoever says he abides abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked Go over to verses 9 and 10 whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness whoever loves his brother abides in the light in him there is no cause for stumbling and the book goes on and on and on like that and what John is saying is that it's really not about what you say you believe. It's about how you live your life as a consequence of what you truly do believe. Real belief, genuine faith, the faith that saves is the faith that transforms. It's the faith that causes us to live differently than we would otherwise live. So a a genuine belief produces a man or a woman who is a warrior for peace, who is a champion of forgiveness. Real belief produces someone who fights for the body of Christ, who is invested in it. So let me give you an illustration of this. Go over to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking about about many things. But he comes to this little passage in chapter 5, verse 21. It's a sermon on the mount. And this is what he says. You have heard it said that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother... Now, I don't think that means a momentary outburst because we all are like that, right? But this is a settled state of anger. You're angry with your brother. Will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he says this. So, here's where it gets practical. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So think about this. Jesus is teaching this, the Sermon of the Mount, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, if you are down in Jerusalem at the altar... 130 kilometers away, and you've walked there, down there, with the sheep that you're going to sacrifice. 130 kilometers. And you're about to worship God in that moment. And suddenly the Spirit of God reminds you that there is something in your heart against your brother. Don't worship. Take your, take your animal and walk all the way back, 130 kilometers back, up to Galilee. Be reconciled with your brother. It's this important. And then take your little animal and walk all the 130 kilometers back to Jerusalem, sacrifice, worship, and then walk 130 kilometers back home. Jesus in this passage of scripture is saying, your relationship with your brother is more important than 390 kilometers, and if you've ever been to Israel, it's it's not like just walking along the Niagara Parkway. Like, it's up and down. It's all over the place. 130 kilometers times four. But beyond that, being reconciled to your brother is more important than worship. 
It's more important. Leave your, don't, don't come before God until you've gone to your brother. Fix it. Deal with it. Resolve it. Heal it. Put it to bed. Seek forgiveness. Grant forgiveness. Get it right. And then come and worship me. You know what? There are churches that do more damage to the cause of Christ because we don't practice this. But again, think about what our church would be like if we were passionate for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we really, really, really believed, it would radically change how we treat one another. Having been forgiven, we'd forgive. Having been shown mercy, we'd show mercy. How forbearing is God with us? We'd be forbearing. How loving, we'd love. And when a church can't do that, when a church won't do that, when a church refuses to get on its knees and accept the the call to repentance to begin living that way, It'd be better they just close the doors. Better not deny and belie the gospel by hypocrisy, preaching one thing and living another. Just shut it down. Turn the lights out, close it down. But the power, the transformative power, the culture-changing power of people coming together, the people of God, His presence in our midst, loving one another. There's nothing like it. It should be our passion. It should be our goal. It should be the cry of our heart. The high priestly prayer was the cry of Jesus' heart. Father, build them into a unit that the world might know that you sent me. Father, build us. Shape us. Do what's necessary in my life. Expose my sin. Deal with my pride. I'm stubborn, Lord. Take it from me. So that people who come to our church would know that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. If we really believe, that's going to be our attitude. That's going to be our perspective. If we really, really believe. There's a terrible story we read in Ezekiel about the Spirit of God hovering over the walls of Jerusalem, leaving the temple, hovering over the walls of Jerusalem, and then just just abandoning the place, just leaving. Sometimes I believe that the Spirit of God does that in our churches. He's pleaded with us, he's prompted us, he's encouraged us, he's disciplined us, And we are just so intransigent. We're just so stuck in our bitterness. Just unwilling to forgive, unwilling to love, unwilling to serve, unwilling to show mercy. I think he just kind of quietly packs his bags and leaves. And the power goes. And we go through the machinations of church. But it's just that. It's just emotions. So if you truly believe the gospel of peace, you're going to make it right. You're going to learn to say, I'm sorry. And maybe right now you're thinking to that person, you need to go. You need to go. And say, look, I hurt you. I was wrong. Please forgive me. So hard to say those words. And by the way, just, and teach your kids, it's, sorry's not good enough. Please, would you forgive me for what I did? And even harder than that, even harder than that, when someone has hurt you inadvertently, to go to them and say, brother, sister, when you did X in situation Y, I felt Z. When you, when you said that in that meeting, I felt belittled, and I'm angry about it, I'm hurt about it. 
99.9 times out of 100, when you go to a brother or sister who is genuinely filled with the Spirit of God and you put your heart out there, you tell them what you're feeling rather than saying, you're such a jerk for saying that. (laughs) When you put your heart out there, the response is compassion and love and healing flows. Some of us have a real significant root of bitterness, and it's just, it's just wrapped around our hearts. It might be from another church, another place, another time. And the only solution is to give that person, even though that person may be dead, the only solution is to take what the Lord has given you, his grace and his forgiveness, and give it away. Give it away. That's what real belief does. That's what genuine faith is all about. And as we do that, our church is going to be radically different. Because Jesus will be here in ways that we haven't experienced him yet, in our worship, in our fellowship, in our prayer times, in our preaching. And mark my words, because it was Jesus' passion the world will come to believe that he is the incarnate son of God. And and quickly, lastly, we need to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit of God. Go back to Ephesians. Paul says two things about what has happened to us as a consequence of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. The first is that we are sealed. Read it with me. In him, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit of God, Paul says, does two things. The first thing he does is he seals us. It's kind of like a stamp of ownership. And I think we know about that. Back in the old days, if somebody would send a letter, they would seal it with wax, they would put their signet ring in it, they would stamp their ownership upon it. And that's what Paul is saying that the Spirit of God has done to us. He has marked us out. He has distinguished us by his presence, by the circumcision of the heart. He has distinguished us, set us apart as God's kids. But secondly, and this is where I want to take a second, real quick to think about. The second thing he has done is he is, he is a guarantee That was a common word used in business regularly, and it was a partial down payment, a a deposit that would guarantee the final and full payment. So when we receive the Spirit of God, Paul is saying we are sealed by him, but he is also given to us as a deposit, as a partial deposit, a partial payment of what we will receive in full someday. And so Jesus said he would send a helper, and he did, and his name is the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. And in this passage of Scripture, we see the the actions of God the Father in choosing, God the Son in redeeming, and God the Holy Spirit in quickening and bringing life to the unsaved, bringing faith and belief. So in our flesh, all of us, myself included, All of us are prone to pride and to selfishness. We're stubborn. We all think that, hey, I'm not bossy. I just have better ideas, right? That's that's all of us. That's how we think. We're self-centered. We're tribal. We're clannish. We all want to hurt when we get hurt, right? That's that's the instinct. I'm going to hurt back. We're easily offended, easily embittered, Forgiveness is not natural. Me trumps we. That's just the way we are in our flesh. And that's why God has given us a guarantee. He has given us a foretaste of what we will experience in full in heaven. We have it now in part. And he is the spirit of God. And there are times in worship particularly when when the spirit of God, Romans 8 16, when the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit and he tells us in those moments of intimacy and worship that you are a child of God and fear is banished and, and, and doubt goes away and there's this wonderful sense of what we'll experience fully in heaven, what we, we experience it now partially in that moment of time by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
We, we, we taste that deposit, that guarantee, that foretaste of glory. And so what I'm saying to us simply is this, in conclusion, we need the Spirit of God to be the church that he's called us to be. We will be conflicted. We will have bitterness. We will have anger. We will have conflict. That's natural. How do we overcome? How do we deal with it? How do we live that unity that God has called us to? The only way is by the power of that guarantee, by the power of the Spirit of God. Without the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in in your life and in my life, I will be a source of conflict and disunity in this church. Without the Spirit of God working in your life, you are going to be a source of conflict and disunity in this church. We desperately need the Spirit of God to make us people who are passionate for unity. So maybe, let me just say in conclusion, maybe you're bitter. Someone inadvertently slighted you. You're angry because your ideas weren't accepted. Your brother hurt you and you're too proud to go and say anything. You did a kindness for somebody and it wasn't acknowledged and now you're feeling hurt and you're withdrawn and you're sulking and you're stuck, you're stuck in it. And because of that, you become a liability. You become a source that is going to prevent us as a church from being all that God has called us to be, the people of God who long for his presence in our midst. So what do you do? What do you do with that root of bitterness that's growing up in your heart, that anger that just seems to burn way down below the surface, but you know it's there? What do you do? Well, you cry out to the Spirit of God. You get on your face before the third person of the Trinity and say, God, I can't do this. I can't be the man, I can't be the woman that you want me to be. Lord, you know my heart. I beg you, change me. Give me the courage to go to that brother to make it right. Give me the ability to be a source of unity within our church family family, rather than a source of conflict and disunity. Let me live the gospel. Spirit of God, fall fresh on me right now. Empower me, enable me to be the man, to be the woman that you've called me to be. Spirit of God, help me move from me to we to get serious about the praise of your glory. Don't let my life be a cause that besmirches and demeans the gospel, Lord. Let me live what I believe. Fill me with your power. And when we do that together, when this congregation commits to doing that together, you know what happens? Jesus takes notice. God answers his prayer. And he shows up. And it's palpable. He's tangible. It's almost that you can touch him. And as Paul talked about in in Corinthians, non-Christians walk in amongst us and they go, what the heck's going on here? And they fall on their face and they say, I'm not sure what it is, but I know that God is certainly among you. That's my heart for our church. And I hope it's the heart, your heart for our church. So let's do what needs to be done in the power and the strength of the Spirit of God to create that unity into which the powerful rushing presence of the Spirit of God can come. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask that you would answer Jesus' prayer for us by doing in our hearts what is necessary to make us agents of unity, agents of peace. Lord, we know how important the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is to the church. Not just so that we might be content, but Lord, that you would be content amongst us. Lord, we know that our unity attracts you You long to be in the presence of people gathered in unity around you and around your gospel.
And you long to display your glory through us to our world. But the incarnation is a fact, an undeniable fact when people experience you living amongst us through our unity. So God, would you do that? Would you take what's in our heart that shouldn't be there, take it away? Give us the courage to pick up the phone, go and knock on a door, make peace where there's brokenness, forgiveness where there is hurt, reconciliation where there is estrangement. And we'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.